down. Yeah, we do want to welcome our online viewers also. Um, please feel free to enter the uh, online visitors card and let us know you're, you're with us. For those of you who were looking forward to seeing Craig's pretty face again, <laughs> sorry. Um, while he's away with his family for the next few months, um, Jeff and I uh, will be alternating each Sunday and, and bring the lesson. That's Elder Jeff. We have a few Jeffs. Elder Jeff and I will alternate each Sunday. And so you've got about three months then to get used to our pretty faces. Right. Actually, I think our, our best feature is probably our haircut. So, might be used to that by now. Um, I'm beginning a, a series here on uh, First and Second Thessalonians, which will be my contribution over the next few months. Um, I would just consider a little bit of background information, how Paul got there and with his companions, and then try to make some applications for us. Um, so... The church in Thessalonica turned out to be predominantly Gentile. Uh, there were a few Jewish converts, and Acts 17.4 tells us a little bit about that. Um, from the text in Thessalonians itself, we get a sense that they were more Gentile than Jewish, or, or more of those members. Uh, Thessalonica was a bustling city, um, an important port, in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea, uh, the, the Via Ignatia, a major highway, came through there, connected the east and the west, basically, uh, Greece through to Byzantine. Um, so it, it, that made it a major trade center and, therefore, a great place to establish a congregation, right? And so uh, what we'll do then as we consider some of these aspects is... Um, look at Paul's journey here. Firstly, as we will consider some, some aspects from Acts 15, the, the background to the Thessalonian letters and the establishment of the church there uh, can be found from Acts 15 to 18. Um, mainly, the Thessalonian information is in Acts 17, but there's a, a information that leads up to it, and, and that is after, that we just want to look at quickly. So Paul was on a mission, and the end of Acts chapter 15 tells us about that. He and Barnabas decided they were going to go on a mission again and visit the congregations they'd established. Unfortunately, this trip did start with some conflict, though. Paul and Barnabas had a sharp dispute, disagreeing about taking along uh, John Mark. They knew they wanted to make this trip, but they had to sort out this detail. Um, John Mark had left the, the previous trip early, didn't stay with them, and so Paul thought it would not be wise to take him along, and Barnabas, whose name means the encourager or son of encouragement, thought it was a good idea to take him. So they disagreed and split ways. I'm guessing that... Um, we could have agreed, uh, we, we would agree that it, it would have been better by far if they had planned to and then amicably, amicably agreed to set out in two different directions. Rather than having this heated discussion and then separating in a huff. Um, we are grateful, though, that they did reconcile down the road. And, and so we're, we're grateful then also, at least I am, for finding... <laughs> You know, these human things in Scripture, real things. 
know, this is, this is what happens in relationships, right? We disagree on things, and sometimes maybe we don't resolve them in the best possible way, uh, but we're grateful that there's always an opportunity to sort things out down the line. So who was in the right? Yes. Um, I agree. <laughs> uh, both had valid positions. Uh, but the, the disunity was really the issue here, right? Is the, the disunity. Jesus spent quite a bit of time in prayer on that and talking about that. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 3, tells us about uh, a diligent pursuit to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What that tells us is that Christ puts, or God puts us together in Christ. We are united in Christ. And what we tend to do as humans is, is work at breaking that. And so the encouragement is not to break that, but to work at maintaining what God has already established. I guess we could say that God asks us to work very hard to prevent breaking apart what he has put together. Um, nonetheless, Barnabas went on his mission, mission, Paul went on his mission, and God blessed those efforts. So we want to bear this in mind as we are on our mission, and we'll look a little bit at that later. Uh, also, we see that God provided on that mission. And uh, we get some sense of this at the beginning of Acts chapter 16. Uh, we'll just read these first three verses in Acts chapter 16. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and in Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So he found Timothy along the way. And there was something about Timothy that Paul recognized would be useful to him. And so Timothy became an integral part of the rest of this mission. We also see that Paul picks up Luke along the way. Uh, we won't go into the details about Luke's authorship of Acts, but it's fairly well established. And so we see actually in verse 10 here of Acts chapter 16, that the pronouns change and suddenly it starts with we then carried on. So in verse 10, when he had seen the mission that uh, the vision, that's Paul, it says immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So at this point, Luke is suddenly a part of this trip. So God has provided now, I guess, a secretary to help record things. Um, Luke also was a physician. And I guess having a doctor along on a trip might be a good idea. You're getting in far away from home and don't know the area. And so we see God's provision here of, of personnel, of, of resources that... Uh, Paul and his and, and Silas needed on this trip. God is involved in our mission to provide what we need. We see also that God directed the mission here. We'll, we'll just read the verses uh, here from 6 to 10 um, of Acts chapter 16. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, and here's the interesting part, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
God's got a purpose here. His Holy Spirit is directing them one way and not another way, preventing access to, to one area. Furthermore, it says, and after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So God has directed them away from one area to another, and then again, away from one area towards another. And he's very intentionally brought them down to Troas. And this is a coastal city on one part of this little piece of water between um, Troas and Macedonia. And so here, vision, uh, Paul has a vision at night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So God has directed which route they should take. And he's provided personnel along the way to help them. An interesting thing here is um, where he directed them to, right? Now into Macedonia and along these cities through which the Via Ignatia moved. They came first to Philippi, then they came along to Thessalonica and then Berea and moved further on. And so we've already spoken of this area of the world that was very important and useful to be able to spread the word of God, to reach people traveling through here from all sorts of areas and to establish a congregation here was a key thing. Paul mentions even in first Thessalonians one verse eight, that the word of the Lord sounded forth from Thessalonica way beyond Achaia and Macedonia in every place, even says in every place. And what's remarkable about this is that Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians saying, Hey, I've heard that the word has gone forth from you has left you into the whole world. Basically it's spread out all over the place. And that's remarkable because Paul has moved from Thessalonica to Berea down to Athens and then to Corinth, all in pretty swift order. He was kicked out of Berea fairly fast. He didn't stay in Athens very long and then got to Corinth. And from Corinth, we think he wrote probably months later. So within a few months, this new Christian congregation has already spread the word pretty far. So it seems like one of the key things is where God established this is on, in this major center from where the word could spread. That was an important thing. So we see God's involvement here on this mission. Uh, to provide and to guide. And so a group then makes its way to Thessalonica on this uneventful journey. Um, let's read Acts 17 verses one to nine together. Uh, this is, these are the verses that pertain to Thessalonica specifically. Um, that arch, by the way, is uh, the Arch of Galerius. It's a, it's a Roman arch, obviously, that was put up to commemorate, among other things, uh, the Roman victory over the Persians. And you know, they have their pictures, the way they were communicating these things in those days of the conquest and the plunder they took and you know, certain details. That still exists in Thessalonica today. So let's... Uh, I read here. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer 
and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So the key part there was, as recorded here, is Paul wanted them to know that we, they would know the Messiah, the Savior, by the fact that he would suffer and rise again. And the second part of that message was Jesus did that. Jesus is the one who suffered and was raised again. This is the Messiah. That was the message for them. Some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews. These are the ones to whom this message might have made sense because they knew the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So clearly Paul and his companions did not spend time only in the synagogue, only among the Jews, but they went to other areas where they could reach the Gentiles also, and a large number of them followed were persuaded. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, that's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the whole world. Who have upset the whole world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they'd received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And from there, they carried on to Berea. So wait, wait, wait. Not so fast, right? I cannot just skip over the events in Philippi either, I would think. This is not just a nice little journey. So we've looked at the fact that they're on a mission. They're going to do some good things and preach the word. Unfortunately, it starts with a little hoo-ha, and they get that maybe sorted out, maybe not. They're on separate journeys, but God's blessing this. And God guides. He leads them in where they should go. And then he provides also some resources along the way. So God's involved, it seems. So shouldn't this be a nice little journey, spreading the word, getting people saved? You remember what happened in Philippi? They were thrown into prison. They were beaten, assaulted as thanks for serving God and spreading the gospel. And they were asked with, with much vigor and enthusiasm to depart Philippi straightway and forthwith. They were encouraged to leave fast. Get out, please. And then in Thessalonica, as we just read, similarly, they were resisted. They were almost assaulted. They were certainly chased away. So what is going on here? What is God thinking? Why, why would God lead them here? just to enjoy some persecution. What is going on? Okay, so we want to ask the question, then what do we learn? What is it that we can learn from what's going on here? I don't want to get too allegorical, but I think there's some uh, uh, principles that apply to us too. In a sense, we would say we are on God's mission all the time. 
If we live for him, if we are God's children, if we are his servants to serve our master, if we are his slaves, having been bought at a price, we therefore really have no right to our own lives anymore. But Jesus has, he has bought us. He owns us. He has full rights to what we do. If we understand these concepts then we understand that we too, therefore are on a mission for God the whole time we live for him or ought to live for him. It's a full-time commitment. Um, so it's important then for us to remember that as we belong to him fully, we can be useful in his hands every day. We can, we should be useful to him. That doesn't necessarily mean that we loudly proclaim the gospel from a street corner as a, that one gentleman does in, 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 a, in the West End every now and then. We see him on the street corner with his megaphone. He is proclaiming the word. He has a message. Most of us are intimidated by that and don't want to do it that way. But we can make a difference in this world. Sometimes we read in Scripture, Paul worked in the marketplace. He wasn't always in full-time missions. There were times he supported himself. He made tents or fixed them, repaired them. And he was in the marketplace. He would have been dealing with people whose tents he was repairing. What all did he tell them? What did he talk about? How much of that was gospel spreading? How much of it was just building relationships? Um, speaking uh, words of life to them. Shining light. Just being a kind, generous person. It wasn't, I would assume, necessarily all 100% message of, the, of, of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. He was interacting with people. And so we can do that in the marketplace, right, where we work and where we find ourselves, just to shine light, be friendly, be kind, uh, make a difference, give a perspective that there's hope in this world when people maybe start a discussion on the difficulties of what we go through. As real as those are, and we don't want to downplay them, we, we have an opportunity um, to, to, to talk of hope, to shine light in this dark world. And it doesn't always have to be an opening of the Bible and pointing to Scripture and intimidating the people who might not want to hear that. We can talk of God in very many ways and point people to him and bring attention to him without never saying the word gospel necessarily. Now, somebody has said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I forget where I read that. I appreciate the sentiment. Of course, we do have to use words. We're not saying that there's never a time to study the Bible. That's not the sentiment of that. It gives a perspective, though, that how we live is a way to share the gospel is a way to help people see Jesus. Um, so consider, for instance, Romans one verse 20, which mentions uh, God's invisible attributes being made visible. I was hoping I could read that from here. <laughs> but since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So God's creation points 
to God. What God has created gives us direction towards God. We might even say that God's creation focuses attention on God. Just like that image showed us, gave us a clearer image of the creation in the background. God's creation focuses on God. I would say that just as Christians live holy lives that are different to what the world does, that are kind and generous lives, we too can point to God. Christian living points to God. In fact, we would say Christian living can bring God into focus. Just by our kindness, our, our demeanor, our attitudes. Doesn't, uh, don't we read in Scripture that all men will know that we're his disciples if we love one another? Just by the way we treat each other, we bring God into focus. So we're on a mission for God, or should be, as his children. We also can look for God's provision and guidance along the way. If we let him, if we look for it, we will see his faithful and generous provision and his guidance and his protection. And, and therefore, this is one reason among many that I suggest, and I'm sure there would be much agreement among us. In fact, I've had discussions with people who've spoken about this, that we need to pray about things we do. Asking God for direction and guidance, even about where we might live, where he might want us, where we find a job. Because maybe God wants to direct us on that. Maybe God wants to guide and provide as we live for him full time, if we're on God's mission as his children. So that doesn't mean we'll never make mistakes, right? What were Paul and Barnabas up to? But even if we were to make mistakes and maybe take a wrong job or go to the wrong city, God works there. God re rescues and redeems and takes us and continues to guide where we are and provides what we need. And more specifically, if things go wrong in a sense, if we're sure we've made the right decision, but things go wrong and they will go wrong, right? If things get hard, and they will get hard, if there is resistance in this world, we can respond with patience and trust. I think if we have a sense that we're on God's mission full time and that God's working things according to his will and his plan, then when do things do go wrong, like they did in Philippi, when these guys were on God's mission and got beaten and thrown in jail, when things do go wrong, like getting chucked out of Thessalonica, when they do get wrong, like getting pursued, even in Berea, and chased out of there too, we can know that God is involved. We can find, I would think, strength in those struggles. So our struggles might look different, but God's involved. God's a part of the process. We can know that there's a bigger picture and that the persecution or the struggles or just the difficulties are not necessarily because we've done something wrong or something's out of whack. God's involved in that. And what we do is respond faithfully. That we know we can do. We can respond with greater trust in what God's doing if we have a strong sense that he's involved in the process. 
And so having then a sense of God's bigger mission is vital. When Paul and his companions got beaten, I have, I have no doubt that they had questions. When they ended up in prison, they must have wondered about things. And when the Jews followed them, continuing to cause trouble, they might have been confused. And yet we see their resolute commitment to serving God. Maybe they did not have doubts. With a well-developed sense of God's involvement, they were willing to pay the price. As it says early on in the book of Acts, they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. And that's not just for full-time missionaries out in the mission field. This is for us every day, right? We get a sense of it more clearly in this, I guess, post-Christian world where the mindsets and the, the, the main marketplace that we find ourselves in is changing from a dependence on God, a, a, an acknowledgement of God to, well, not even including him in anything, or in some cases, even pursuing, persecuting Christianity and godliness is growing. So it's for all of us. Uh, when we moved to um, Cape Town from Memphis, to, well, thought I'd be able to say it. Um, what was I thinking, right? So when, when Coe drowned nine days later after moving, um, one of the things that kept us going was a sure knowledge that we were on God's mission. Um, abandoning Cape Town and that mission was not an option. Um, we had seen God's provision. We had seen God giving direction. We had at first thought we were going to be heading back to Johannesburg or Pretoria to that area, but God took us to Cape Town. Closed one door and opened another and um, provided some remarkable resources along the way and people. Yeah, what, what was I thinking that I could keep it together here this morning, right? <laughs> so um, we were able to see um, God's faithfulness, even, um, even in that struggle. And as a direct result, some key aspects of our ministry grew from that loss. We did know and continue to know today that we live for him and for his kingdom purposes. And it's not only those of us in, in full-time ministry, all of us live for his kingdom purposes. And so as we consider our plan in context, we see that God's plan is superior and bigger and over our plans. We make plans and we pursue them. And along the way, we try to reach God's people and make a difference in this kingdom. And along with our plans, God provides and directs according to his plan. So may we walk faithfully with him this day and this week and 
into the future. God bless you. Eric Song.